that felt so our family and our friends are what we ended up calling Javi's posse gave us so many gifts of showing up and being present that it felt like we also needed to give them the gift of really being in a space that is so scary on this sort of this liminal space that can feel so inaccessible and yet I think with some of the right language and some of some of these incredibly wise poets and mystics and educators and therapists like I really do think there's a way for people to feel like they can access it with you and then it becomes even more powerful because now we have this community of people who hold hobby with us. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kefauver here. Welcome back to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Just in case you're new to the show, yes, it's a podcast all about grief, exploring the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. So together, we're going to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're here. Oh, my friends, I'm bringing you such a sacred and beautiful conversation with today's guest, Myra Sack. She shares the heartbreak and the beauty of what it was like to be with her daughter, Javi, in her too short life. She and her husband, Matt, ended up having only 13 months between Javi's diagnosis of Tay-Sachs disease at just 15 months old and her death at home with them. But in that time, they created a sacred weekly ritual that combined the Jewish tradition of Shabbat with birthday celebrations that Javi would most likely not be alive for. The result was 57 Shabbat and the recognition that we can all hold joy and pain in this liminal space. Myra, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I've been so looking forward to this conversation since the first time we connected. And I'm just grateful for to be in conversation with you today. Me too. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yeah. So I've spent a career really thinking about where we learn the grief beliefs that we have in our lives. And that comes from my training as a narrative therapist and and other things. And really with because of my role of as a grief activist, I'm really trying to help us name what our grief beliefs are and then begin to make some decisions about whether or not they're serving us or not, or actually kind of causing us unnecessary harm. So you might know, and our listeners, I'm sure know, that I ask every guest the same sort of opening question. And it's really to get at that notion of sort of what are the grief beliefs you first learned? And 
So if you can think of an early memory of loss, of grief, and share just a little bit about what that was, and in particular, kind of how your community, your the adults in your life were modeling what grief should or shouldn't look like through their actions and words, and maybe even in action sometimes, of course. Yeah. 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 There's really two different, I think, two different moments that stand out for me. The first is incredibly personal, which was when I lost my grandmother and my my parents were picking me up from sleepaway camp. And we were supposed to go from camp in the Adirondacks down to Oceanside, Long Island to spend a few last summer days with, with my grandma. And um, when they arrived, when, when my parents arrived to, to pick me up, it was sort of clear that something was different in their energy. Uh, they were excited to see me. And uh, in, in particular, in my dad's body language, I could tell that he was there was something he needed to share with me. And uh, we spent a few hours doing the camp thing. And then they shared the news that my grandmother had passed. And what I remember in particular was that I asked my parents, did she get my letters? Because I had been writing her letters over the summer. And they said, without hesitation, yes. And she loved them. And now, present day, there's no way she was reading those letters, given where she was, <laughs> you know, perhaps at the soul level she was. But that yeah. that helped. Like, it made me feel connected to her. And it made me feel like this very permanent thing that just happened, maybe there was some bridge, some way for us to stay connected. And then the second one, which is maybe more about inaction, is Columbine happened when I was in middle school. And I remember feeling like my sense of safety had been robbed for the first time. And we never came together as a school community to talk about any of the loss that um, the victims, families faced, what it meant to be a kid in a school at this moment. What we did do was we started having these safety protocols. You know, Mr. Knight, that was our school mascot, is in the building. And so I think that that, that kind of reaction actually speaks to sort of this tendency to want to just fix as opposed to like let us be with something that, you know, for the first time felt really scary to go to school. And what did that mean? And how did we talk about it? Yeah. Wow. I appreciate you offering up those sort of very different, but I think relatable loss experiences and like how the world, you know, the larger world and even your family world showed up. I love the notion that, that you're parents let you feel as if you had this connection with your grandmother because the truth as it stood, whatever or not, was sort of irrelevant. It was really mm -hmm. about seeing that you needed to feel this connection. And I think that's a really beautiful sort of example of the way we can, you know, not get locked up in the details, but to really sort of meet somebody, sense where somebody's needs are and meet them where they're at. And I particularly appreciate the way you highlighted in action, because I do think a lot of the harmful grief beliefs that we learn sort of individually and collectively are from our avoidance, our inaction, combined with our sort of cultural obsession of sweeping away and fixing 
fixing problems and sweeping away those pesky things called feelings, you know, as if they're an inconvenience as opposed to being, you know, I can't remember who the thinker is, but we are, we like to think that we're thinking creatures that feel, but we're actually feeling creatures that think on occasion. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I could just even feel viscerally. I was trying to remember how old I was when Columbine happened. I think I was, I was older, you know, as an adult already, but that notion that we can experience profound grief when we lose a sense of safety. And for any of those who are listening, I know I did for myself, I experienced a trauma when I was a teen. And one of the earliest grief experiences I have is sort of this loss of innocence, this loss of sense of, you know, that the world is a safe place, that I can trust all adults. Yes. You know, and so I think that sort of in action that we take, maybe sometimes because we think, you know, again, this isn't necessarily malicious intentions by the adults in the school, but they thought if we bring it up or talk about it, maybe it's going to make people feel sadder and we don't want people to feel sadder. So we just won't talk about it, you know? And it's really interesting the the sort of approach behavior versus avoidant behavior, which we know approaching things helps with coping and regulation, everything. And yet when it comes to grief, as a society, we often avoid. And I think it's because we see grieving people somehow as scary or, you know, this negative stimulus, as opposed to seeing grieving people as beautiful and wise and light. And I think that if we could somehow talk about grieving people differently the way the way you do it i think it would help us sort of shift our mindset from avoidant to approaching um which could be so powerful for all of us yeah oh i love that terminology of avoidant and approaching and yeah i mean that is what i'm doing that is what you're doing you know in the wake of of losing Javi, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but I appreciate you talking about that. And to your, and sort of to add to your point, there is so much wisdom and beauty and, and in our avoidance of it, we, other people, which is just so ironic because we are, will be, have already are those people. And so we're not only denying permission for other people to walk through this, you know, fire and gain wisdom along the way, we're denying that for ourselves when we sort of compound these avoidant behaviors. Yeah. 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 And it's not easy. I just want to name like, for all of us, it's just not easy, right, to be with that. And I, that is the terminology, I think, you know, you mentioned that earlier that I love so much. Holding space and bearing witness has been a sustained meditation of mine for decades. And I think really what it takes to walk your own grief path, but certainly to show up for others in their grief path is to cultivate this practice of being with or accompanying, which is not a skill. You know, we learned a lot of skills growing up from our family and in schools, right? Right. That's not a skill that many of us, I won't say all of us, but many of us learn. And yet it's one of the most profoundly important skills we can develop in our lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's messy to to do the both and thing, you know, to be yeah. to to be able to yeah. hold pain and beauty alongside each other and think somehow that it enhances our lives and I think until yeah. we are in a situation where we have to do that to survive, yeah. it's 
in some ways hard to wrap our minds and hearts around. Yeah. Well, to that end, that notion of holding pain and beauty in the same moment, I would love to begin, have you begin to tell us about you, your partnership with Matt, and a little bit of the story of kind of how Javi came into this world, speaking of beauty, and just start from there, whatever you want to share about that journey to becoming a mother. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So I met Matt, who is my now uh, husband of five years, and I met him in college, actually, when I was an undergrad at Dartmouth through his sister, who was a soccer teammate of mine. And Matt was the older brother of of my teammate and, and best friend. And he and I did not have any relationship at that time in our lives, but sort of re-met later when after I graduated college. And we landed in Boston, Massachusetts, which is where we are now, um, because Matt became a resident at the Brigham and Women's Hospital here. And um, we knew that we wanted to start a family, but also knew that we were both Ashkenazi Jewish. And so we needed to do some genetic carrier screening in advance of conception um, to make sure we weren't carrying any diseases that we'd never want to pass on to our children. We underwent that carrier screening. I learned that I was a Tay-Sachs carrier. Um, Tay-Sachs, for those of you who don't know, is a is a neurodegenerative disease that essentially strips the person who has it of everything that you could imagine, sort of motor skills, language skills, all of it. It's, it takes everything. And the lifespan is somewhere between two and four years old. And anyway, to sort of cut to the, um, to the tragedy, my um, Matt's ordering physician just ordered the wrong confirmatory tests. And so we were told that Matt was not a carrier. I was a carrier. That was not a problem because both of us needed to be in order to, for the, the baby to inherit the disease. And we learned of the fatal error when we started to notice that Javi was experiencing developmental delay at about a year old. Prior to a year, when Javi was born, she was gorgeous, huge eyes, strong neck. The nurse placed her on my chest and said, oh my gosh, I've never, I've never seen strength like this. And um, we experienced the first year of parenthood, I think in some ways as any do, as any new parents do, exhausted, confused, <laughs> energized, in love, all the things. Um, and at a year, we learned that she was facing some delays and we ended up on a diagnostic odyssey, which resulted in the Tay-Sachs diagnosis. Javi was 15 months old. It was December 19th, December 17th, 2019. And we were faced with this uh, moment where we needed to reconcile with the fact that we were going to lose our daughter, who we were supposed to have a lifetime with, um, in about a year. And the doctors said, I mean, yes. knowing the sort of trajectory of the disease, that's what the doctors were saying. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I think we sort of. <laughs> we sort of unpacked these emotions of the deepest anguish, shock, horror, anger. Um, and at some point, fairly quickly, got to a place of 
feeling like we needed to somehow be with her for as long as we had left. And we didn't know what that would look like, but that was our instinct initially. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And even just for being on the show, having this conversation, this is exactly what we were just talking about. Like, how can we make more visible and approach these topics that are so hard and here in this, you know, December, in this moment, when you receive this diagnosis, you and your husband didn't have a choice, but to approach, (laughs) you know, this, this new reality, the choice that you did have and choice feels maybe like a more active word than you probably felt at the time I can imagine. But how do we be with the devastation of this news and be with the life and the beauty and the time you have there. What I can imagine just from my own loss experiences that it's all a blur in many ways, but can you recall kind of how it is you and Matt came to that decision to sort of be in this being with we're going to talk about the Shabbat birthdays, I think is how you pronounce yeah. it, right? The Shabbat birthdays yeah, and kind of the rituals that you enacted. But sort of before you sort of, you, when you moved from sort of, and it's not this clean, of course, no. shock and anger, you know, to this sort of active living and being with and celebrating and loving for her time left. What did you and Matt call on? Did you call on faith? Did you call on some inner wisdom? What what do you think you kind of drew from in that time to pivot in that way? Yeah, I, to the extent that I remember the particular moment, yeah. I remember feeling, I remember Matt walking into the bedroom. I was on the phone on a work call. I remember seeing his face and then, and I remember him sharing the news. And after I screamed this, uh, uh, a scream that I can still sort of hear, I remember this instinct to go towards Javi to like get up from mm. the bed and go find her immediately and to hold her as closely as I could. And it was in that moment that I realized that she was here with me in this physical world for only a brief moment more. And so I was going to summon whatever courage. I think faith came in this way of maybe faith for me was sort of this combination of almost when compassion and forgiveness sort of swirl together. And Mm. I felt like my faith was tested. And so I, I guess I entered that sort of swirly world of compassion and forgiveness and wanted to hold my daughter and wanted to be with her and wanted to see her for her beauty and her sacredness and not for what was a really scary, life limiting disease. And so I think it was this instinct to lean into beauty and to see my daughter as someone who's beautiful. And that sort of, I suppose that faith has persisted even after she's been gone from this physical realm. Yeah. And we're going to talk about so much of the beauty that you have shared with me in our previous conversations and in the beautiful piece that you wrote for Upworthy. You know, many times when I talk with parents over the years who've lost a child, either from something that what you experienced or from a tragic accident, 
we talk often about maybe the partners not coming to the same place at the same time mm-hmm. in terms of kind of how they want to move through the experience. Sounds like you were pretty clear, almost like it was a download mm-hmm. sort of in that moment. Did Was there alignment with Matt too, or was, was there some, you know, did you guys have to give each other space to come alongside to yeah. to this plan or yeah the, I mean the way that the the concept of Shabbat birthday came about was we had actually went we'd gone to see a rabbi and um, that rabbi was recommended to us by a family friend who we loved and trusted and this was three or four days after we got Javi's diagnosis we were sitting with this rabbi and we had on the way to this session with her we had gotten into a conversation Matt and I on a walk where we said you know, this just feels so wrong on every level. Like what, what are we going to do? You know, we have one more birthday with our daughter who's, you know, only she'll, she'll have two birthdays. This feels unjust. And it was on this walk where we said, one of us said, you know, she loves challah, which is a Jewish bread. And it was the only bread she ever crawled. It was the only thing that could ever sort of compel her to crawl. Now we know that mm. she she had this horrible disease that was limiting her from crawling. Right. But at the time we thought, oh, she's a carb girl. And she'll just... I mean, yeah, I can relate. Yeah. 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 And so we were sort of thinking in this moment about what she loved, what gave her energy and strength, and this fact that she wasn't going to have a birth, more than one more birthday. And so I said to Matt, what if we combined what was supposed to be this traditional, typical annual birthday and with Shabbat, which happens every Friday, that way she'd have more than one more. And Matt sort of looked at me and I think at first to your question was, was like, this seems sort of nuts and um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. And, and pretty quickly on the same walk said, what else are we going to do? Let's give it a shot. Yeah. Um, and when we arrived at the rabbi, she, and we shared this idea, I shared it with enthusiasm. She, um, she didn't support the idea. She felt like it was, um, she said to me, you know, what are you going to do when Javi is no longer here? How are you going to honor these Fridays in a way that feels okay when she's not here, if you create these rituals around being here. And we got in the car and Matt and I looked at each other and said, respectfully, that's bullshit. We're we're all in on these birthdays. And so I think from early on um, and really throughout Javi's life and death, there's always been a dance between us, between Matt and me. One of us is maybe farther along or in a different space than the other, but we're um, conscious of, of bringing each other along and giving each other space to sort of get there on our own. So it's, Mm. our relationship has been a gift in that way. Yeah. Again, so much beauty about what you've uncovered, um, sort of being open to in this way, this download or this receiving about what is it I want to do now with this, time that I have with Javi and how, and I think, you know, we've talked on the show before about the importance of ritual. It can be traditional ritual, you know, that's something like a Shabbat, but it doesn't have to be. And it's really about meaning making. And I, I love the permission giving you each gave yourself to say respectfully bullshit, you know, 
because I think maybe, and for some that might've been relevant or okay advice for them. But I think the thing that I heard in that was a little bit like, ooh, don't create a ritual where then you will remember Javi and be sad. And it's like, I'm going to remember Javi and be sad all the time. At least I'm going to create this thing where we were intentional and deliberate about being present in in her too short life. So I think that that's a really beautiful... When we come back, Myra helps to paint a picture of what the birthdays looked like and felt like, and perhaps most importantly, what she asked of those who participated. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast, and I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. If you're looking for more grief support and education, or just curious what I'm up to outside of the show, Sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakeefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. Why not so regular? Because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. Can you give us a flavor of, of what a birthday felt and looked like? I yeah. think I read you got to have 57 of them yeah. um, in her time here. And something particularly I'm interested to hear about was this notion that you didn't pretend that happy. Yeah. So even though it was a birthday, yeah. yeah. Tell, yeah. tell us a little bit. Give us, bring us into what a, one of them might have looked like and who was there. Yeah. So each one had... Um, each one had elements of always of food, of hala, of candles, of light, of people who the only rule was that people had to be in our space who saw Javi as sacred, who wanted to hold her, who were going to make her feel comfortable in their arms, who weren't going to be afraid to hold her, even though she looked and felt in some ways like a very different toddler now having a healthy toddler, I appreciate that contrast. But for us, if you were going to be in our space, you were going to hold her beauty. And so Javi at your birthday was always in someone's lap or someone's arms or against someone's chest, even if she was drowsy or sleepy. And we, we always had people come and bring some poetry. We sort of channeled Francis Weller's The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Yes. Um, yeah. Sort of this this belief that ritual shed us of maybe these normal social customs, and so maybe it's not always normal to hold each other and cry when you're not in a ritual space. But for us, birthdays there were always tears. There was a lot of sadness. We would listen to Cole Swindell's "You Should Be Here" every single mm. birthday and hold each other and cry, and uh, sometimes tremble and shake, and sometimes I still do that. And we would also watch Javi carefully and make sure we were sort of paying real attention to her, catching her mm-hmm. when her eyes got really big or when sometimes some laughter would bubble up inside her. And we would laugh alongside her as she watched one of her uncles pile on too much food and sort of go into a food coma. You know, we would we would belly laugh. And so she birthdays looked like family and friends who were comfortable accessing what was most vulnerable inside them. 
and doing it in a way that was always following Javi's lead and always making sure that these these Fridays were hers and that 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 was that felt like the only thing we could really give her. Yeah, and give yourself give ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And so understandable, but when we are in this activated fear state, which every parent is when their child is at risk, it's very difficult for us to be present because we are in active kind of saving, surviving, fighting, you know, whatever that sort of mode is. So I think the container of the ritual in this way, I can imagine, was sort of that invitation to kind of come back down into your body and come back down into you know, being present. Yeah. And it really, it was sort of how do we, how our life became, how do we get to our next birthday? And that anchor was incredibly powerful for us and therapeutic. And um, I think having rhythm and routine in our lives always is essential. In a time of chaos. In a time I mean, of chaos is everything. Yeah. yeah. And so that, yeah. and it still, it truly still remains. And now Javi's younger sister and an infant brother, now they honor her birthday with us and it feels different and looks different. And yet it's still as powerful and important as it was when she was here. It's a thread that carries through. We're definitely going to talk about that, that sort of memory forward and and all of that. Something else that you said that I just want to call out for the listeners, I think is so important was this, I'm going to call it an invitation to those who arrived to treat the space as sacred, not scary. Yeah. Which requires of the visitor to kind of check their own energy at the door and for them to be present to beauty, even as they make space for their emotions. What was that like to witness people who, you know, maybe sort of on the, before they walked through the threshold of the door, felt a lot of fear, but were able to walk through with a sacred attitude? What, what was that? What did that mean for you in terms of grief supporters? It was interesting. I think that Javi's life and death changed me in the way that I had always been someone who was accommodating, you know, like overly accommodating. And like, it's okay, whatever you need. You know, if this is good for you, it's good for me, even though it wasn't good for me. And I think it was with Javi's diagnosis where that sort of inclination to accommodate started to retreat into the background, at least in the moment. And what came forward was this need to make sure that I was protecting myself. And that protection came from people who could express and emote. That's what, and could remember to your point that remembering is so powerful. The prefix re means again, and member, like a member of a community. So it was people who could bring Javi again and again and again into our community, as opposed to dismember and dis, the prefix is no, is like, oh, no, they're not a member. And so we, how we did it was we just talked about the fact that it was really important to us. And we sort of asked people to get educated alongside us. And I think it's Emerson who talks about like creating your own Bible, not in a religious sort of way, but we shared texts and books and poems that felt resonant with us. And we asked our people to come along and 
quickly, once you sort of start throwing that at people, it's obvious who can be with you. And it's okay if there are people who can't in that sacred time. And we had to be okay with not accommodating anymore. And so that was that was a little bit of a dance that once we found sort of the right steps, yeah, just felt felt like it was it was right for Javi, so it was right for us. That's so beautiful. That notion of stepping into what you needed most, but also providing those people who you knew wanted to show up with the tools in a way or the the dance steps. I love that metaphor of how to sort of come alongside and accompany you. I also think, you know, of course, as you said, you experienced, and I know I have many, pretty much I'm sure every griever has, that there are just some people who, for whatever reasons, can't yeah, do that dance, can't accompany. And yet for the people who do, I think what you just described, what you offered them is such a gift because I think so many people don't show up because they don't know how to yeah. and they don't want to cause extra harm. But, you know, in a way you kind of standing up for yourself and and really prioritizing what you needed instead of taking away from the other people. In in my estimation, you are gifting those other people with a real roadmap for how to accompany you. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's... That felt so, our family and our friends are what we ended up calling Javi's posse gave us so many gifts of showing up and being present that it felt like we also needed to give them the gift of really being in a space that is so scary on this sort of this liminal space that can feel so inaccessible and yet I think with some of the right language and some of some of these incredibly wise poets and mystics and educators and therapists, like I really do think there's a way for people to feel like they can yeah. access it with you. And then it becomes even more powerful because now we have this community of people who hold hobby with us. Like that's everything, yeah. you know, who, yeah. Yeah. And who didn't just hold hobby with you in her time in this form, in the physical world, but because they walked through that with you, they now also hold Javi with you in the remembering, you know, in the, in the carrying forward. And that's, I think, you know, I say it time again, I know you feel this way. I know you've shared this in your writing before too, but the best thing you can do for someone who's faced loss is to not forget and to carry the stories forward and carry the memories forward and to check in. And yet we struggle to do that. But for, I imagine for those people who walked with you, danced with you in the time of Javi's life here in the physical world, they felt even better equipped to do, to walk, accompany you in that memory keeping in the after. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think it's, I think it's so much about I don't know, for me as a mom, I want Javi in the everyday mundane, the, you know, mundane sense of dailiness, not only in the magical or the spiritual or the extraordinary. And so I think when people are able to send a photo of this beautiful shade of purple that reminds them of Hav just in the course of a day, it's like thinking of her as if they were thinking about anyone else who's walking yeah. this sort of physical world with us and yeah. that 
for me, that's everything. Yeah. And I, I guess I just am so yeah. grateful that our posse was, was brave enough to, to come along. Yeah. What you were just touching on was something else I know we've talked about before, which is sort of how we invite the dead into these spaces. You know, I think you used the term sort of take a front row seat, which is so countercultural to how we think, you know, about kind of moving on and leaving behind and or that that somehow inviting the dead into these spaces is pathological or a sign of, you know, yeah. stuckness, right? Yeah. I want to kind of move into that space of how you transitioned into to that place of inviting Javi into your daily lives in this new form, you know. Yeah. But I also wanted to just pause and give you a chance to say, is there anything that you want us to know about Javi so that we might mm. carry her forward with us about her life, about her personality? perhaps about the experience of being with her in as she took her last breath, just anything you want us to know so that we, we might also be carriers of Javi. That's such a beautiful question. Thank you. I um, yeah. Her color is certainly purple. That's why that's our, I'm always in purple. So anytime okay. someone sees purple, hopefully they'll think of Javi that came because she was always so beautiful, but she looked particularly beautiful in a, in a certain um, long sleeve purple shirt. And um, okay. then it sort of just stuck. I think the thing about her that I would invite others to embrace was, was the way she had this sense of calm and aliveness at the same time that she mm. could be in a space and bring this tremendous sense of calming energy and invite me to be so awake to the present moment. Yeah. And that, yeah. I think, calls on something mysterious. And um, yeah. so for me, that's, that's Hav, that's her essence. So thank you. I love that. Oh, thank you for sharing her with us and for sharing those aspects. And thanks to her for reminding us about the capacity to be at once calm and alive, you know, and to be present to that. So Hav, Javi, mm -hmm. got to be with you in physical form, I think just under two and a half years, right? Yeah. About two, two years, four months. And so as you turned that corner in your relationship with her, and that's what I say, because I know that you continue a relationship with her, what were those early weeks and months? And I mean, we're only coming up on the one year anniversary, right? In in January? Jan this or two January two years. Will be two, yeah. It will be two years, yeah. But how did you begin to invite her into the spaces and into the front row? What what does what did that look like? What does that look like for you? And and why why was that important to you to sort of continue that relationship in that very profound present way versus kind of that past way. Yeah. I think that I'm always finding ways to to be with Javi in my life as it exists today and the way that that first started when 
she moved from the physical realm into the spiritual one was quite jarring. I think that before losing my daughter, I had maybe an easier time imagining a spiritual realm in some way that yeah. felt uncomplicated. And, yeah. and when you go from being with someone, knowing that they go to sleep in this rocker every night that I can kiss her forehead or rub her cheek and feel her to not being able to do that is incredibly, it's, it's anguish inducing and it's scary and horrifying and raw and disorienting. And I felt like the only way I could somehow hold all of those feelings and that reality and also appreciate the beauty she brought to my life and continues to and the fact that she existed and still exists. The only way that I could sort of bridge that gap between this sort of harrowing set of emotions and emotions that are truly joyful and otherworldly was to say, come with me, like be here. And so I would do things like go on the same walks that I did with her and talk out loud and, and Mm -hmm. somehow connect some of these senses that exist here in this realm with the realm that she was in. And the more I did that, the more I felt okay. And I continued my practice and still do every single day of writing to her in the same journal that now there's, I think I've filled six of them. Um, A few versions. Yeah. Yeah. One just starts with the date and then dear beauty. And I just tell her about my day. And sometimes Mm -hmm. those are, those one page journals are reflective. And sometimes they're just like, Hey, here's the account. Here's the inventory of my day. Kaya didn't sleep at all last night and I feel shitty today. And eight minutes later, I sign it, love always, M&D, mom and dad. And somehow I feel like she she took part in the day. And I know that she didn't take part in the way that I wish she could. And yet it's something. And so I think those sort of everyday ways to invite her to exist with me um, save my life. And they certainly don't, they don't crowd out the people who are here physically, which yeah. I think sometimes it's such a mess. It's such, it's a, such myth. a myth. Like, yeah. We, yeah. in fact, after I finish writing to her or after we go on a walk together or after I open and close a drawer that has her pajamas in it, like I find that I have more energy for Kaya and Ezra right. and more love because my capacity to hold what is so precious and fleeting is is like right there expanded it's right there yeah. yeah 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 oh i love that and i love this notion this is why i do this show this is why i do this work is this reminder that though grief is solitary you know in a way um we don't have to do it alone. And that includes, we don't have to do it by leaving behind That's right. the person. If it's a death loss, of course, we grieve other kinds of losses too. But when it's a, 
around a death loss that we don't have to have this false binary choice of leaving them behind or being present or reverent to the beauty of the world. And I always say that going through loss doesn't make you someone who appreciates awe and wonder more, but if you do experience loss and you take heed to that learning and and how you incorporate the life, the love, and the loss into your presence, then I think those of us who've done that, I think appreciate, and I hear this in your how you talk about, appreciate awe and wonder in ways that many don't. I mean, I certainly do. When people hear my story and of course, yeah. oh, I'm sad, that's sorry, it's so hard, you know, you lost your husband, then you lost your friend Joe and, you know, and it is sad. I'm not dis- d- diminishing that. And I, there is not a day that g- goes by where I don't literally pause somewhere on a walk, somewhere outdoors and just laugh out loud or take a picture of the butterfly or the hummingbird or the rose I happen to now live in Southern California, so it's a little easier to do. It's a little, it sounds it's a little so beautiful. Uh, than my time and like, you know, but anyways, but I did even when I was still living in Michigan and I did it in my years in Austin, Texas too. I have a way of appreciating and, and communicating that appreciation to the people who are present. Yeah. yeah. And I hear that in, in our conversations in the past and in your writing, yeah. do you, do you, are you aware of your heightened sense of, of, appreciation and awe and wonder yeah i mean a- absolutely and i wish that it didn't i i wish that i wish that i were back to being you know the person who didn't notice a leaf as it was falling yes. down and landing gently on the ground i mean that was never me i had my head down and was trying to run <laughs> through my miles as quickly as i could on a run and now i yeah. like look up sometimes and track a leaf you know and yeah yeah of course, I do anything to have Javi back. And yet there's, there is this awe and wonder and beauty that I think that grieving people embody and inhabit that could save the world if we knew how to approach them and us in a way that could invite them into conversations about life yeah. beyond grief yeah that would just enrich our communities and i i hope that i hope that we can one day because uh yeah. i think i think grieving people have a lot to offer any kind of space and i wish we didn't have to feel like we were cast aside into spaces that were only about loss when we come back myra's words help us all remember that the grief of losing a child or anyone in an unexpected way is not just in the missing of them in the past. The losses are accrued with every milestone they won't be here to enjoy. Friends, if you've learned something new from this series or found it helpful in navigating your own grief, I sure would appreciate you heading over to Apple Podcast after the show today, leave a rating and write a review. Truly, it would mean the world to me. That go get your grief on other grieving people. Don't get your grief all over me kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I agree not to get too soapboxy, but I do think that so much of the othering that's happening in this world 
you know, um, this distancing and this othering and this judging could be, I think, as a result of so much unacknowledged and unprocessed grief and loss and also at once could be reduced Mm -hmm. if we all connected to the sort of shared humanity that not a single one of us gets through this life. Yeah. You know, without experiencing some profound losses. Um, So that's right. That's why, I mean, I I know my my listeners out there who are grievers can relate to this. When I meet a fellow griever who is, because you can experience a loss and kind of deny your grief. So that's a different kind of person. But when I meet a fellow griever who is, as you are really doing the important, beautiful, hard, cherishing work of bringing forward the lessons, the love, the life, the loss of, of that, it's kind of magic. There's always a little kind of magic in the room, I think. Yeah. 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 So you've talked beautifully, Myra, about sort of the rituals, the way you accompanied and walked, even the sort of ways in which you invite into this, you know, sort of in the after, you know, I think about this time as the before and after a continued and beautiful relationship with Javi. I want to touch a little bit on the reminders to all of us, the sort of permission giving and the reminders to others about the fact that we're not us grievers, especially for you, for all of those who are listening who have lost a child, you know, what we often say is out of out of order loss, of the of the milestones and the moments mm-hmm. that are we're not just you're not just grieving the past, but sign of each thing that didn't get to become, that we grieve each of those losses. If you wouldn't mind, I'd love to read this beautiful little passage from your article you wrote for Upworthy, A Mother's Letter on the Passing of a Young Daughter, that I think is sort of an invitation for this conversation, and and maybe you can reflect. Yeah. So you said, for me, Javi's death is not a one-time event. It happens over and over again. Every moment, she is not where she's supposed to be picking out a mismatched set of clothes that look adorable anyway, walking into preschool with her little hand gripping my index finger, pausing between the slides and the swings for a few bites of fig bar at the playground, playing with her little sister who looks up in admiration at her God-given best friend. The losses are layered and constant, and they will accrue every day and on every missed milestone until the day I die. I'm not sure people understand that about losing a young child. Yeah. Um, I think that there were comments early on when Javi was diagnosed that were really painful and hurtful Mm -hmm. about the fact that at least she wasn't an adult child or at least you could have other children. And no sentence in grief support should ever start with at least. Yeah. Just F- FYI, to, in case you were wondering. Just, yeah. And um, I think I'm it's Walt Whitman who says, like, when someone insults your soul, ignore them. And yeah. I think once I was able to trust myself and my emotions enough to embody that sentiment, those comments were incredibly painful and meant existing in the world was felt impossible. And 
So the reason why I started sort of meditating on that at first came from a place of deep hurt. And then it has moved into a place of this notion that like to be bereaved is to be robbed of, to be robbed of something that you're supposed to exist with. And so losing a young child means you're robbed of all these futures, every future that feels forever. There are so many, there are ones that I could imagine and ones that I couldn't and can't still. And so every time I experience one of them, I'm back in early grief. And I think that concept that you can return to early acute grief, even after some amount of time has gone by, is so misunderstood by the general public because we try to measure our sort of grief acuity in terms of linear timeline. Um, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. now I place in some ways I, I can't remember the poet, but I think about Javi holding time for me. And so she embodies time and that that helps in those moments of like incredibly heart-wrenching ache. Now Kaya is talking about she has a younger brother at home and Javi is in her heart. And every time she says that, I want to smile the biggest smile and cry the deepest cry all at one time because she shouldn't have to hold her only in her heart. That's insane and and horrific. And yet I hope she does, you know? And so... um, those are the sort of now we're entering this new phase of of Javi's siblings starting to already do things that she never did and articulate mm. things in ways that she never could and being with those moments in a way that feels um, that honors Kaya and Ezra and their lives and holds Javi with us is a new challenge that I think we're we're just going to take on. Um, yeah. 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 Such a beautiful reminder of, to all of us, of course, a yes, when you've lost a young child, but for all of us who've faced a loss, right, we're going to have some version of what you're talking about, a birthday that doesn't come to pass, another celebration, right? And so to give ourselves permission to both be present in the joyfulness that we're here and the people we, other people we love are here to be with that and. Yes to to allow that person to be in relationship and to i know it's a crazy idea for some of us hold the both and of joy and pain and sorrow and celebration and to model that even for your other young children i think is such a profound and important lesson i you know again a little soapboxy here but i think if we raised a generation of children who understood that it was safe and okay and normal to be with the both and of complex set of feelings you know Mm -hmm. we might be we might be a little better off as a world yeah and I I um I have a niece who's five and uh she so she knew Javi Javi was her first cousin and just a few days ago two letters arrived in the mail from from Ayla it's my niece one was addressed to Javi and the other letter was addressed to Kaya and Ezra and we opened each of the letters and, you know, it's this beautiful five-year-old version of the oh, card. And yeah. I said to myself, if only everyone could 
grieve like my five-year-old niece in some way, you yeah. know, that, that she sees Javi as, as present as a part of her life because she is yeah. and had the capacity to put a letter in the mail. Of course, it's a testament to, to her mom, my sister-in-law. Yeah. Um, I was going to say but, shout out to yeah, your sister-in-law exactly. also. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just so beautiful and simple, you know, who gets a letter in the mail from, from a family member or a friend addressed to someone they've lost, yeah. seeing her name is so powerful. Uh, yeah. And so yeah. I just wanted to, to name that because I think yeah. there are like everyday ways to integrate and honor, you know, the wisdom of five-year-olds. I totally. mean, let it be said right here on yeah. the show. Yeah. 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 So I hear you. I hear you sharing us the ways that you're bringing you know, Kaya and Ezra into this, as we begin to kind of wrap up our conversation for today, although I absolutely know this will not be the last conversation you and I have. Is there anything you want to share about how you and Matt are carrying Javi Ford into the world, whether it's like through sort of the work that you do or how you sort of walk in the world, Any anything else you want us to know about bringing Javi forward. Yeah. Um, I've written a memoir and it has both my voice and Matt's voice. And we're in the crazy process of trying to get that published in some way. Yeah. And so I hope that enters the world, but that's really Javi's story. Yeah, I've worked on, and I think this is what brought us together. I'm working on a movement-based grief curriculum, which integrates yeah. grief principles with movement and exercise that helps yeah all of us sort of hold our grief alongside such an important act of healthy behavior, which is movement yeah. and exercise. And I'm doing that with the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport. And that's an amazing organization. And so I hope that goes into the world. And if anyone is a runner or likes to exercise and wants to somehow to participate, I would love for them to join. Yes, please do. Yeah, yeah um, I do it. Yeah. And um and that is as simple as before going on a run, writing the name of the person you lost on a little piece of paper and putting them in your sock with you and bringing them on the run. And at the end of the run, seeing how it felt um, is one sort of example of this very simple practice. And then Matt and I, like every day we try to yeah. uh, outfit ourselves in purple. We wear what we call uh, Javi gear, which are little bracelets. Um, that's just a mentality of living that feels like it embodies her essence. And I guess we just try every day to appreciate that that everyone, like you said earlier, is is grieving in some way. And if we yeah. bring a little bit more compassion than maybe we have energy for at a particular time into a space, maybe we feel like Javi somehow with us. So yeah. yeah, I think those are the ways. That's so beautiful. I will definitely drop the links to everything that you just shared in the show notes for our listeners today. So you'll be able to hear about that. And I'm very much looking forward to your memoir. I'm in the midst of my own book publishing thing. Oh, and yeah, it's a, amazing. it's a timeline and a circus. So, um, <laughs> but, but this podcast lives in perpetuity. So as things come out, we will update links and make sure people have a chance to learn about that and learn about the healing center 
and the work that you're doing there. Mm-hmm. Myra, thank you so much for being with me today, for bringing Javi and Matt and Kaya and Ezra into the room with us also today. I, I'm so honored to, to be having this conversation with you and to know you and to continue this work. And now I can, and our listeners can carry Javi forward too. So just so appreciate you joining me today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much, Lisa. You've created a a beautiful and sacred space, which I know you do for so, so many. And um, it's it's not an easy thing. And so I thank you for holding her with me. Yeah, such an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I want to give a shout out to Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show and to the team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>